and I'll give you one other example. And, and uh, you know, DEA is not perfect. We had an agent who was a very good friend of mine <clears throat> who worked considerable undercover. He was Cuban-American. Um, his wife was an agent. He was, uh, I, I don't want to, he's still living, so I don't want to say something here that I would get sued over. But he got transferred back to South Florida as a group supervisor, and his group was doing money pickups. And he had become so confident in his undercover abilities that he went and did a money pickup by himself. Well, what do you do? If you got seven, eight hundred thousand dollars, a million dollars, what do you do with it? So he walked into the bank, he badged him and said, I need to have this counted, and then, you know, deposit into his personal account. Well, just so happened there was an IRS agent or an IRS, I don't know if he's an agent, but an IRS representative at the bank that day. And the teller went to the manager, the manager went to the IRS, and they're like, this just doesn't sound right because this DEA never does it this way. And so they started an investigation. He ended up going to prison, which is where he should have been because he stepped over that thin blue line to the bad side, lost his career. His wife lost her career. Now he's a convicted criminal, convicted felon. It was horrible. And he was involved in one of the highest profile cases that DEA has ever participated in. And and I'm just not going to say it because I don't want to get sued over it. Yeah. You know, it's funny because in a movie that came out in the early 1980s, Extreme Prejudice, the uh, drug trafficker says to Nick Nolte, you know, why don't you just come work with me? And Nick Nolte says, "Um, you can buy me. You could always buy me, but you can't buy the badge. And one without the other ain't no damn good. One of my favorite lines from that movie, and that was Michael, um, I'm trying to think the other guy, always kind of played a bad guy, kind of bald Powers head. Booth. Yeah. And just, that that was a great movie, too, because I love that line. Because, you know, Nick Nolte, you'd look at him, think him, you know, in uh, 48 Hours and stuff, kind of as a buffoon and stuff. But in that, I love that movie because I thought it was really raw and authentic. And that was a good one. Murph, I think we just have an idea maybe for our narcometer. We might do a Nick Nolte. I'm writing it down right now. <laughs> Great minds. Think like, thanks for <laughs> I'm the inspiration, just Michael. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny because you, you talk about buffoon. As I said, I'm, 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 I'm married to an amazing woman. And uh, she I'm glad knows you said that. She, she said buffoon. Well, I mean, <laughs> Speaking of buffoons, no, I'm married to my no, wife. No, what I mean <laughs> is this. No, 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 no. No, no, I love her to death. What I mean is this, is that she's heard all these high-speed things I've done, yet she sees me fumble around the house looking for reading glasses and tripping on carpet and stuff. And she's like, we don't know if you're James Bond or you're Mr. Magoo. <laughs> Spectre, so so <laughs> the name that they coined on me is Bond Goo because they don't know if I'm Bond or from Magoo. <laughs> so, you know, she's heard all these lady, stories, lady. but she's, she's seen the older version of me, which is this, this dittering, you know, moron. And, uh, so yeah, that, I'm that's bon a good Goo. lady. That, that's a good sense of humor right there. <laughs> oh, but, but you know, but that's the reality of it though, is, uh, you're faced with all these challenges, and I like what you said. It's how you exit out of it. You know, can can you maintain? Because the other thing too, a lot of a lot of pressures, a lot of guys, not just because they're facing criminal action, but home life, divorces, alcoholism, um, alcohol, yeah. drug dependency, drug use. Yep, yep. Uh, and it's a it's a tough business, and and in an area, it's it's one thing if you're only presented with it every now and then. Maybe you're in a lower 
crime area. Maybe you're in a you know slower speed, you know somewhere else, slower way of life. We, we had but when you're hit, so many targets hit at it all the time. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. You're hit it all the time. We we had we had cases we couldn't work because we were too busy working other cases. We had so many targets, and we were also working a lot. I was personally working a lot in New York and Los Angeles as well as Miami. So you know we were doing pickups and drops in other cities outside of uh, South Florida. So it was it was a um, a very fast-paced time for 10 years, yeah. That's what we used to say. If you could make a drug case in South Florida, you need to go get another job because it was washing up on the beaches. It was falling out of the skies. There was Everybody was flipping on everybody else. Well, you know, that's the, what Luis Navia was saying. That they had – what was that one place? He was talking to the customs agent. There was a lighthouse there. That was just like a target. You'd come by. Mm-hmm. You just – that was your target. You'd come by. You'd d- drop the coke. You know, right there, and then you'd fly off. That's that. That would be Key Biscayne, and because it's a national park, they realize there's probably no park ranger there at night. And on the other side of that is is a little um, saddle like harbor. Would be a good pickup spot. Yeah, just amazing. So, but I know we're going to talk about some other stuff too. But you did this for ten years. Um, give us an idea of. You started going to New York and L.A. Um, you mentioned things like Medellin Cartel. What are some of the other activities you engaged in during that time that went to that, that got you out of Coral Gables? There was a nexus there, but got you onto the national stage. I mean, was it just strictly, were you involved in money laundering? Because that is your site. Just so folks know, you can go to uh, money launderer or moneylaundering.com. No, no, I'm laundering money. Laundering money. I'm money sorry, laundering, laundering money. Money laundering I'm launderingmoney.com. Launderingmoney.com. Laundering money. Hey, did and you I'm ever know- And I'm also michaelhearns.com. Michael Hearns, which I have your author site up here too. We're going to post all that for you. Yeah. Yep. Hey, did you ever know a guy named Ken Rijock? Yeah, let me tell you about Ken. <laughs> let me tell you about Ken. <laughs> He's a former Ken, guest on the show. Ken, um, all right, I, t- I told you about my wife. And my wife lived in, I don't want to say where Ken lived, although Ken's told many people where he lived. Ken and my wife, when I started dating her, lived in the same building. And so I would see him in the parking garage no shit all the time and he didn't know who i was but i knew who he was and i didn't want to like freak him out you know because uh and so we get in the elevator and and it was was a beautiful building in miami and in a beautiful part of miami and uh i we go back and forth and now um he sent me his book a couple weeks ago we we connected, and then I sent him my first uh, Kay Taylor novel. I signed it, and I wrote into in it in it what I just said to you guys. Uh, you know, we live to tell. You know, we live to tell the stories. Um, you know, he's a good guy. I mean, you know, he did his thing. He Ken's Ken's forte is he has a law background. Yep, but mm-hmm. you'd be surprised um, how much a little bit of knowledge of law really goes in your favor. And if I don't know where we are in our timeline, I'd love to tell you a story if I can. Oh, you sure. can tell us anytime. Just for folks to know, too, that was episode 14 with Ken Rijak. Came out November of uh, 2021. Yeah, we it was in, he was one of the first bulk cash smugglers, and uh, he had an interesting background from Vietnam, you know, to what he's doing now. But no, go ahead. We, we, the advantage of a podcast is we don't have to do things sequentially, we can bounce around if we want to. And if you've got a great story, well, let's hear it. You know, when we would sometimes when we would get a, um, information, there might be a large amount of currency or drugs in the house, mostly currency. We would sometimes try and do a consent search. You guys oftentimes refer to that as knock and announce. And I was very um, 
good at getting into houses and talking to people. And I, I had some really good CIs and I had CIs that were cabinet members in other countries. They were regular Joe Schmoes in Miami. Um, but I had some really good CIs. So we would oftentimes go to a house and attempt to get a consent search. And if we weren't able to get consent search, we would, we would go and based on that information, go get a warrant. And back in that time frame, warrants took a long time to be written. It took about three and a half hours to be written. And, you know, they have to be exact. You know, the, the house faces northwest. It's, a, it's white with a blue trim. It has an asphalt roof. The numbers are 3916 east on the east side of the door. And you have to have all that detail. So half of the team would go back to get the warrant written. And the other half would stay at the house. And I would oftentimes stay at the house. No one's going in. No one's going out. And some attorney would show up invariably that the cartel, that the Medellin or Cali cartel had on retainer. And they may pay this guy eighty or 90000 a year just in case they ever need him. So this guy would show up and he, he wouldn't even know who his client is. He'd be looking around. He'd be like, uh, uh, um, uh, are you Mr. Are you Mr. Garcia? Mr. Garcia? You're Mr. Garcia. Hi, I'm your attorney. And so for like three hours, he would just berate me about how the good citizens of Coral Gables are wasting their time, energy, and money on having me as an employee, how he can't believe that I would go on this fishing expedition, that I must be um, prejudicial against other people because I'm, I'm out here harassing his client. Don't I have better things to do? Just for three hours, he's trying to show the client that he's doing this job. So when the warrant would come, I'd get the warrant, I'd step inside the house, I'd turn around, i say to him, listen, I'm really new at this, I've never done this before, are you sure you're okay with this? He would step in, look at the warrant, say, yes, 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 you guys must have these judges in your back pocket, I don't know how you got this signed. Or I'd step in, hold my cell phone up, and go, why is your office calling my phone? And he would look at me, I'd go, this is yeah, you know, I'd use a few choice words. Whoever it is, get We're off family the family friendly. Yeah, and I'd put the phone down, and he'd come in and get the phone. So now we have to go after we seize. We might seize, say, three hundred thousand dollars now. So now we have to go to what's known as an adversarial hearing, or in the ten day rule, which means we have to go in front of a judge in chambers with legal counsel and explain to the judge why this currency belongs to Coral Gables and not to Mr. Garcia. So I would be in chambers with the judge. It'd be our task force attorney. It'd be Mr. Garcia, and it'd be the attorney that showed up on the scene. And they would say, okay, we're here to discuss $300,000 found at such and such an address in Miami-Dade County on this such and such a date. With us is attorney so-and-so. Detective Michael Hearns is here. With us also is Mr. Garcia and his attorney. So, Detective Hearns, tell me how you came to be at this house on that day. And the first thing I would say to the judge is, Your Honor, I want to invoke the rule. And the judge would look at me, oftentimes take his glasses off and rub them and start laughing and go, son, there's no rule to invoke here. 
And I go, yes, there is, Your Honor. Because that man right there, and I'd point at the attorney, was inside the house when we searched the house. He's a witness to our search. He's the first witness I'm going to call. And the judge would go, you were in the house when you were searching? Yes, sir, Your Honor. He came in and picked up my cell phone for some reason off the front foyer. Yes, Your Honor. He came in to discuss the warrant with me inside the house while our team was searching. He's a witness to our search. He's our witness. He's now an attorney. He's a witness. Gavel would come down. Judge would tell Mr. Garcia, you have five days to get new legal counsel. And I would kill two birds with one stone. That guy would no longer be an attorney for the cartel. Garcia would never get an attorney in five days. I did that to seven different attorneys in Miami in my career. Seven. Oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> and so Ken has all the legal lawyer lifestyle behind him, but a little bit of legal knowledge goes a long way. Yeah. <laughs> that's funny. Hey, I now, don't understand. I mean, some of those attorneys in, in South Florida were so freaking obnoxious. Slimy. Oh, yeah. You know, just greasy. They were on I retainer, mean, and they were just, you know, trying to, you know, and I, I, I got them discredited. The, the cartel will never use them again, and we were able to make our seizures. So, Good job. Now, other than running into Ken Rijok like that, did you ever have an official interaction with Ken or an investigation, or was that just more just uh, passing him in the hallway? Uh, two gunslingers. Just two old gunslingers, you know. Living living in a building that we probably both don't deserve to be in, you know, just. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, this is the, when you when we talk about small world. We were having some conversations during a quick break, a pause, and you know, just just the names. But then you've realized too, a guest we had on a year and a half ago, just to know that you walked past him in the hallway. I mean, you talk about a small world. I mean, well, that's everybody's used to be everybody's related by six degrees of separation. I think when you get into the world of law enforcement and crime, we're all related by three degrees of separation. If I don't yeah. know somebody, Murph knows him. And if Murph doesn't, I do. Or we're one phone, we're one or at most two phone calls away. I joke that I'm the Forrest Gump of law enforcement because I actually did a money pickup with uh, Joe Pistone. Uh, at the very, very back end of his career, he was very good friends with, I don't want to say who it is because he's still good friends with that guy. And and th this guy's in law enforcement and he brought Joe out for this deal. And I'm sitting in my car and the guy pulls up next to me and goes, hey, you ready for this thing to go? I go, yeah. He goes, say hi to Joe. And this this guy leans over and goes, how you doing? And I go, how you doing? And, you know, there it is. And uh, I heard your uh, podcast with him, and you're absolutely right. The hat and the glasses, it's, it's, it's like, you know, it's all the time. He's, and that he's, was uh, episode 73, for those of you. Key. I can't, how many episodes have we had a connection to already? I mean, it's so many South Florida. Steve's going to tell you, South Florida, it's like everybody – gets there at some point and there's some sort of there's some sort of rubbing of shoulders at some point and everybody it's like the mcdonald's of law enforcement and drug dealing everybody works there passes through there most likely at one point oh, it was funny when i was in miami january february maybe march all the new york and boston agents wanted to run their cases out of miami to get out of that cold weather and come down and enjoy the sun and the surf and... I, I used to love to go to those briefings and like I'd be sitting there and they go, okay, Mike, you'll be the UC and Alex will be the other UC. And then the DEA guy go, how come I don't ever get no cases down here? <laughs> and <it's> like, <laughs> because you sound like you fall off a milk truck in, 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 in the middle of Manhattan. That's why, you know? 
Exactly. You're exactly right. What are these two youths these doing guys, on the beach I'm here? telling you, these guys, they do all the time. It's, this is bullshit. I'm telling you, this is supreme bullshit. Yep. Yep. So, it was funny. The yeah. first time you go through it, you know, and I'm here, I'm just, you know, just a young agent. And you look at this guy, so like, well, if you don't like it, take your ass back up north. But then you see what's going on. You get to know the guys. And it's, it's I, funny. I had the opposite. I had to do a lot of pickups in New York in the winter. And I remember being in DEA headquarters in New York. And uh, I asked, I had to use the restroom. And so I'm walking past all these cubicles and they're all got, you know, all the police memorabilia on these cubicles and glory shots and things. And I go by, I go by this one cubicle and it's just got nothing but pictures of Miami. And so on the way out of the bathroom, there's this very young agent in there. And I look at him and I go, Hey, uh, you from Miami? He goes, yeah, I go, I'm from Coral Gables. I'm up here doing a deal. And he goes, ah, and he just like wistfully looked up into the sky, like, ah, oh, man, I wish I could be back there. And then, you know, just to be the jackass, I am all like, yeah, when we're done, we're flying back tonight. <laughs> you know? yeah. Back where you don't need a coat, back where you don't need a parka, back where there's, you don't have to worry about the subways. Ah, oh, man. Yeah. Back where, I mean, we're, you know, we can, for our listeners, we can see each other on video. We only release the audio portion of these interviews, but you know, you, I see Mike here. He's in a short sleeve shirt, and I'm pretty sure he's in shorts, and I am too. And we're looking at Morgan, and he's got his long sleeve jacket on, his hat. It looks like he's got earmuffs on, probably his little mittens. Those are called headphones, Steve. <laughs> headphones. And this is, hey, this is my, uh, this is my uh, Secret Service one, dude. I got that when I ran the uh, Republican National Convention back in 2012. So I've got to visit the Secret Service store. So when it's at biting ass cold like it was this morning when I got up, 25 degrees. Oh. Uh, which I've had colder, but it, as you get older, it's like no, my 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 set point starts raising, man. So uh, oh yeah, I got to dress warm. I actually authored our mutual aid agreement with the Vermont Drug Task Force and had to go to Vermont and um, work cases coming across the Derby line into Rouse's Point uh, with R R R M R C M P um, and. Uh, I, you know, because I had that time in Connecticut, I sp I've spent a lot of time in cold weather. Um, I'm not a fan. I mean, I am like, put me in about four inches of water in a sandbar with a with a with, with something cold in my hand and just watching the sun go. That's 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 heaven for me. Life is good. Yeah, and life you know, I'm, I'm so lucky. I basically saw salt water like almost every day of my life, and was in it, saw it, got near it. You know, and and we don't recognize that. You know, your body is composed of water and minerals, and there's a lot of salt in you, and there's a lot of water in you, and this is what draws us. And the lure of the ocean is very strong. And if you were raised or around it a good portion of your life, you will never ever feel comfortable being in an area, whether you can't see it or be near it. You just won't. Speaking, speaking of Vermont, I went up there one time for a speaking gig and uh, I remember I had to drive, I had to drive about uh, an hour to get to where I was going. I stopped, I wanted someplace to eat, found a nice little, good little country store or whatever. And I go in there and of course, Vermont's got all the maple trees, you know, and everything. And there was this shirt there with a picture of a huge maple tree and it goes, yeah, I'd tap that. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it was, that was, it was a good sense of humor. Hey, let's uh, talk about this though. So you did uh, a lot of this undercover work uh, for 10 years, but a lot of this was related to drug trafficking, but at some point did it start relating to terrorism? 
Um, you know, I was always telling our team that the money we were seizing, it represents a lot of things. It represents um, destabilized economies. It represents uh, political campaigns that are being highly funded. It represents a lot of uh, anguish and a lot of turmoil. And it also represents uh, the funding of terrorism. It was easy for those in the group who just focused on cocaine to think only of, and you always heard the same thing about Colombia, Colombia. But the reality of it is, as Steve will tell you, your better coca grows in Bolivia and Peru in the Chapari Valley. It's really, you know, the, 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 the Colombians had an amazing economic model. They controlled their product that they didn't really harvest, and they sold it in a market that they didn't really have to be a part of. And they had it repatriated back to them as either American currency or pesos, it was an incredible business model when you really look at it. They were not, the cartels are oftentimes portrayed as being um, less than intelligent. And don't ever, ever, ever fool yourself with that, man. They have some of the brightest people, some of the biggest account in mind, some people in who are ex-law enforcement, current law enforcement, ex-military, all working for them. This is a, this is a, billion billion dollar a year uh, multi-billion a year industry and they didn't get this way by luck um you know and there is propensity for the currency to fund terrorism and it was in the very back end of my career um that i started to think of it in that respect and then i was out of it around 99 and then of course 9-11 occurred in 2000 and, and and one, and in my teaching, when I was teaching a lot of AML, anti-money laundering, I started bringing in the terrorism aspect to it and showing people how um, the currency can be used for terrorism. Did you get into other groups besides the Colombians, you know, Hamas and, and you know, the different groups over the Middle East? A lot of people don't realize that Hamas has a big presence in South America and what we call the uh, the Triangle which is down near Paraguay, Brazil, and Argentina. It's a very, very dangerous part of the world right now. And there is a big Hamas presence in South America. People don't know that. They oftentimes think it's just, you know, one or the other. And, and we, we do that with our entertainment, with our television. We, we readily identify the bad guy and the, and the good guy, but oftentimes there's a, there's a melding and a blending. And, um, there's a Russian presence in South America as well. Um, there's just a lot of people that don't seem to realize that. They think it's all just one ethnicity or it's all one country or it's all one region. It's not. Um, so, yeah, I started teaching uh, in the AML classes I teach. I do a lot of narco-terrorism as well. And we go into some of the different biggest currencies of the world. It's the first biggest currency is general money, you know, meaning Apple computers, Ford Motor Company, Toyota. The second largest currency is drug trafficking. And the third largest currency is uh, grocery store coupons. So, you know, those three things and the grocery store coupons alone fund a lot of terrorism. So, uh, I was doing work at DOJ on information sharing post 9 11 after some DOD stuff. And a guy named Scott Sweetow was with ATF. And it really struck me when we started thinking about how the cases they were looking at, because you think of ATF as mostly like firearms and explosives. Well, they've got that T in there for tobacco. 
And that was one of the cases we talked about that we used as a use case for some of the stuff we were doing. You had terrorist groups uh, over here, uh, Hamas, Hezbollah, um, you know, uh, you know, uh, Al Qaeda type of uh, affiliations. And what they were doing is getting cigarettes in bulk before the tax stamp was put on there create a counterfeit tax stamp, put it on there, and then sell it and keep the difference between the tax stamp and the price that they paid for it wholesale. And that money, they, would, they were just making money hand over fist. And the case was made out of North Carolina. And you start thinking, to your point, about all the different ways money is exchanged. You know, there's a there's a system, uh, an Arabic system uh, called, you know, Hawalas, where you move, uh, you know, you move money. Very hard to track that kind of stuff, too. I mean, it's you think the dark web is tough, and it is. Hawalos are much tougher to track. And Michael, hang on before we talk about Hawalos. We've got a quick message from one of our new sponsors. Game of Crimes is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, Steve, this is a topic you and I have discussed many, many times, and we're not strangers to it. Um, we've encouraged people to get help. And one of those things is that we've had many guests on our show who have gone through life-changing experience. I think of Joe Piersante being shot through the head, Lou Velosi, a lot of the stuff he went through. Many people who are at some of the darkest points in their life, and the one thing that brought them back, the one thing that helped them, was getting help. It was getting therapy. Right. There are, you know, we all have events in our life that, that will change what the norm is for us, you know, to the point where sometimes you don't know what you want. Uh, you don't know why you react in the way you do. And that's where better help can come in to, to help you better connect with what's going on internally. Just to, to put it very bluntly, better help will connect you with a licensed therapist who can take you on that journey of self-discovery to find out what's going on and, and get you straightened out. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of what people need, it's like if you're going to build something, you want the right tools. When I'm working on a car, I want the right tools. Well, sometimes to work on yourself, to improve yourself. You don't know what you don't know. You need a new set of tools. You need a new way of looking at the problem. And so, you know, it's about learning coping skills. It, you know, and the other thing, too, in this day and age with so much stuff going on, it's about setting the right kind of boundaries for you, for your children, um, with friends. I mean, I set boundaries with you all the time. I say, quit calling me at three o'clock in the morning, but you still do. <laughs> yeah, I don't listen to you very well. But so, you know what, if you're thinking of starting therapy, think about BetterHelp. Give it a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule, which is fantastic. Uh, all you have to do is fill out a brief questionnaire. You get matched up with a licensed therapist. And you know what? As you're going through and meeting your therapist, if you're not connecting the way you think you should be, you can change therapists without any extra charge. You know us. You've heard us. You've talked about we always encourage people to go get help. So discover your potential with BetterHelp. So go visit BetterHelp dot com slash GOC to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash GOC. Okay, Michael, let's get back in. Uh, let's talk about some of the training uh, you've done on Hawala's. Yeah, I, I do a couple hours on Hawala. I do a couple hours on narco-terrorism. I do a couple hours on grocery store coupons. And I also do a couple hours, I do like an hour or two on tobacco. You don't even have to even go to that extent about the stamps. You can just buy the cigarettes a lot cheaper in North Carolina and Virginia and then just sell them on the black market in New York City and and make it, make money. And if a state trooper should ever pull you over, you don't have a contraband product in your car. You know, tobacco is legal. You know yeah, what you, you do with it. Smoking habit. What you yeah. do with it in the back end is illegal. But as you are moving that those cigarettes up to New York State to move, to sell them, and they also get them off of the, a lot of the um, indigenous reservation um, areas of New York State and move them into New York City. Um, 
you know, the counterfeit goods, all those, all those purses and wallets you buy on Canal Street down there in New York City, all that money gets repatriated back to a lot of terrorism groups and things. Yeah, and the thing about the the the, the coupons, I don't know if you ever had a guest talk to you about coupons or if you're up on it, but first time we've heard coupons used on our podcast. Oh, yep. Well, coupons basically, the terrorist groups will employ. People who are behind the power curve it could be elderly people on on fixed incomes, college students struggling for money, single parents, and they have them clip a bunch of coupons, and then they control some of these small markets and bodegas in the uh, parts of New York and New Jersey and St. Louis and Chicago and stuff like that, and then those those coupons go to these markets and the markets send them off to be redeemed and they can only be redeemed through a coupon clearinghouse and the largest coupon clearinghouse is ac nielsen so what happens is ac nielsen says okay we just sold all this product we got to send the money back on the coupon so they get a certified check back and then the market turns that check over and it gets put into a terrorist bank so what the only enforcement part of that is if AC Nielsen hires their own people or the Secret Service. So what they'll do sometimes is they'll sometimes create a phony product. That's why you'll see like in your Sunday Circular, in your Miami Herald or your New York Times or a newspaper you get, you'll see a product and you want to go buy it and you can't find it on the shelf. It's because it doesn't exist. And every time that coupon gets redeemed, they know that that's, that's part of the network that's that's um, sell, that's fraudulently using the coupons, and they oftentimes will adulterate like baby formula because babies can't tell you it tastes bad. So they'll counterfeit that. They'll counterfeit other things, and they make a lot of product off of that. And um, actually, the first bombing of the trade towers in New York is funded from coupons. The nineteen ninety three bombing. Yeah, it was. They all went to a video store in Brooklyn. And a guy named Ivan the Red was the uh, one of the enforcers on that. But I'm trying to remember the um, the the sheik. He was blind. I can't remember his name. The blind sheik Omar. He went uh, to Buckner yeah. uh, Correctional in North Carolina. He he was the head mastermind behind that, and all the money came from grocery store coupons. So you collect all these coupons, you steal the circulars off the loading dock at the at the printing press, you steal them out of um, newspaper recycling bins, and you cut them out, and then you have a phony, um, you have a fraudulent uh, storefront redeem them, and then you recoup the currency. So grocery store coupons account for about. Two hundred million a year. Well, wow. that was the blind cheek was Omar Abdel Rahman, uh, who has now assumed room temperature back in twenty seventeen, which is good for him. Yep. Um, yeah, I, I remember that too. And, and another interesting thing too, and I, you know, we dog on the FBI every now and then. It's a re, it's a state law in Virginia. We have to make fun of them at least once per episode. But what I give them credit for is the way they caught the guys too on the first trade tower. Uh, they searched the stuff. You, you come up with the VIN, like they did Oklahoma City bombing, you know, very meticulous. We had Ed, Ed, Ed Davis on from the Boston Marathon bombing and just talked about how meticulous they were collecting all of these different parts. And then, you know what the morons did, uh, Murph? I don't know, you know, this part. <laughs> yeah, I know. They, I they, know. they reported the truck stolen, then tried to come back and Clean. get out of paying the contract on the rental yeah. vehicle. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Any way they can. Oh, uh, hey, so... 
Go ahead, Steve. I, I was just going to say it's amazing. These criminal groups, you know, for our listeners that are not aware, don't think that they are just uh, stereotyped or, or stovepiped into one crime. It's wherever they can make money. I mean, making money off a of baby formula? Holy cow. Well, and the coupons. Have, I never heard yeah, of Yeah, because the babies can't complain. They can't tell you it tastes bad. So that's yeah. one of the ones they do. I'm trying to think of some of the others that they've done. It was, it was actually a pretty strong group out of St. Louis that was um, doing all this. And, when, and what happened was they had a wire up. And the head guy of the group was angry at his daughter for who she was dating. And he killed his daughter. And they heard it on the wire. So they had to... You know, in in discovery, it came out that he and his cohorts were being investigated. So the group went underground for a while and resurfaced up in Minneapolis and resurfaced in Chicago. And then all that money went towards New York. And then that's how they funded the Trade Tower uh, first bombing. And like he just like um, like like we were just talking about the um, the VIN off the chassis or something. They found a piece of it and they were able to track it to the U-Haul truck. Yeah, thank goodness. And and uh, the other thing, too, we did episode 34 with Aaron Graham, one of Steve's buddies, former DEA. But we did, you talk about counterfeit baby formula, counterfeit products. Aaron um, that works for a large pharmaceutical company, and we had a fantastic discussion about all the all the stuff. There's no, number one, there's no such thing as a Canadian pharmacy, so people mm-hmm. don't do that. And if you have any questions, go to pharmacy.safe, and that's where you can look up a lot of that different stuff. So, but let's talk, let's, let's talk, you did this for 10 years. Was it Time to move on, or uh, did what circumstances changed where you said, okay, enough 10 years of undercover? Because, you know, it's not an easy life. You know, you're, I don't want to say you're constantly paranoid, but you're constantly paranoid to a certain extent. Um, what finally said for you, hey, 10 years is enough before you moved on to something else? You know, it was a combination of a couple things. We had had a change in leadership in the department. And we had also had a large change in the tactics and the way we were doing things. We had been originally in the early 1990s, late 1980s. We were with Operation Greenback with U.S. Customs. And then we worked multiple operations, Operation Wizard, Operation Casacom, Polar Cap, and, Green, and then um, Bill Clinton was elected president. And he had um, Janet Reno, former Miami-Dade state attorney, as um, attorney general. And she felt that money pickups and money deals were unethical. So she started to clamp down on customs and IRS on doing pickups and drops. And we had a lot of cases in the pipeline. We had a lot of informants. We had a lot of things going on. So... We went to the Justice Department, the DEA, and we created a state-run task force that has special dispensation from the Justice Department to operate. And under that auspiciousness, we kept going full steam ahead. But in doing so, we had to bring in more agencies, and that brought in more people. And not everybody who was brought in um, it was of the caliber of people you wanted to be doing this type of stuff. And it got to the point where I felt that we were becoming not so much a part of the solution as more of a part of the problem. We became very large and unwieldy, and we started having, um, f- you know, fractions started happening and stuff. And then, and like I said, we had a, a change in leadership in our agency, 
And it just it just became a culmination of it's time to go. It's time they want you to go. It's time I need to go, you know. And it just was like, it's just a natural migration of, okay, this has been good. 10 years is a long time. It's a long time. And my signature, you know, Coral Gables was the host agency of this task force. So I was a the Gables detached person to the task force. So my signature was on every seizure. And I remember towards the very, very end going in for a deposition and the stenographer was running late. And it was just me and the attorney in the conference room. And he's trying to engage me in small talk. And I didn't really want to deal too much with him. I dealt with him in times past. He was definitely a cartel attorney. And I said to him, I said, um, his name is, he, he's, he's dead now. He's, he's, and I said to him, uh, hey, Miguel, what's our, what's our reputation down south? Meaning, what does the cartel think about us? And his response was he he leaned on the table and he got real close to me. He goes, I can tell you one thing. They don't like you. They know who you are and they don't like you, but you play the game fair. And that wasn't like the impetus or igniter to leave, but it was like, I've been doing it for 10 years. And there were times when we'd make a seizure at 11 p.m., and at 8.30 a.m. the next morning, my paperwork was being handed to me by my CI that had been faxed from Columbia. Hey, you know, how did this happen? So I, I spent my entire career and that, and oh, I, let me rephrase that. I spent my entire undercover years. I never got myself or anybody on my team hurt or killed and never got an informant hurt or killed. And it was just, you know, you're, you're rolling the dice, you're rolling the dice. And now it's just, it's time to, it's time to move on, you know? And um, when he said that, it was like, you know, they, they, they know who you are, but you play the game fair. So. That's not a comfortable feeling. No. I'm sure it's one that I know you are intimately aware of. Um, you could take all the precautions you can, but somebody somewhere, something, something is going to illuminate you, you know, so. Muted. There I go again. I was trying to try to keep from uh, hacking or coughing. By the way, I've just, I did, I was gone five days, San Diego, ran into a good friend of ours that uh, Steve and I have, Mel Sosa, runs the Southern California Gang Conference. I'm only back for two days and I got to go to LA, Orange County. So I'm like, uh, my mind's, you know. I'm still recovering, but what I was saying is that you, you know they only got to get lucky once uh, doing that. Right. During that time, though, that you were um, undercover and doing work, was there any instance where you look back on it now and you go, "Yeah, um, either that was somebody doing surveillance, or uh, you know somebody following me, or anything like that?" Did anything stick out to you as you look back at you know reflectively and go, "Yeah, that was probably them." Uh, no, not exactly. I cleaned myself a lot. Um, uh, my first wife used to get very angry because I would never take a direct route home. I would always be. And like if I saw a car on our street that I didn't recognize, I would just drive right by my house and keep going. Um, I, I, I took a lot of precautions in a lot of ways. And, and um, in our offsite, you know, we never ever walked in with gear on or ray jackets or anything like that. In fact, we never wore ray jackets because we had – pennies like athletic pennies 
that we would just roll over that said, you know, U.S. Customs, DEA on them. Their ray jackets oftentimes inhibit your ability to reach your weapon. And uh, in South Florida, they're a lot cooler than the ray jackets. So we didn't have, I didn't walk into buildings with jet, with radios and gear and badges and guns and things like that. And I definitely didn't look nor act like I was in law enforcement. I think a lot of that is because I didn't have a lot of time per se in uniform. And, um, I, I mean, I remember, I remember when I came out of Vin and I had shaved and cut my hair and took out the earrings and stuff and, um, walking through my building and, uh, the elevator opens up and the secretary from the detective <laughs> division is in the elevator with another woman. And she looks at me and she goes, Michael, Oh my God, you look, you look so, you, you look so different. I said, Oh, Hey, nice to see you. And then as the doors were closing, I hear her say to the other woman, he was so scuzzy before. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it's like, you know, so no, but I never had any counter surveillance and never had anybody like, you know, leave a dead fish at my front door or something like that. No. Well, you know, and, and, and our listeners might be thinking, well, man, he's really paranoid. Well, if you've seen that unusual car out there, maybe it is, maybe it's not. But the bottom line is we're talking to you today all these years later. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's money. It's, you know, it's, people die for a lot less than what we were seizing every day, you know, and just regular robbery, stick up holdups, you know. It's just terrible. I mean, stealing an iPhone, you know, they want your sneak. I remember when the Air Jordans came out, there's a new movie coming out about Air Jordans and then people were getting robbed when the new Air Jordans came out. I mean, it just, it's the devaluation of life. Yeah. The um, big circle, you kill the cow to make the shoe and then you kill the man to get the shoe. Yeah. yeah. Well, in the back and these dopers, what's their bottom line? Why are they in this business? They want the money. That's the bottom line. They don't give a shit about the dope. That's why they want to move it as quickly as they can. It's dope all is a commodity to yeah. get to the money. Exactly. Yeah. It's, yep. it's useless if it doesn't generate income. Yep. And that's why I like what you were talking about, too. If you want to, if you want to, I mean, you can take their dope. They'll just make more dope. But you take their money, uh, you know, you can't, you can't, unless you'd want to counterfeit, you but you cry. can't print money at that when scale. When you seize yeah. the currency, you negate the bribery, you negate the transportation, you negate the coca labs, you negate the um, storage, you negate the wholesaler, the retailer, you negate all of them when you take the money. Before we move on after the 10 years, you mentioned, uh, I was actually going to ask you about this and thank you for bringing it up. When you were doing UC, describe, uh, if you want to tell us what your uh, what UC name you use or what you did, but describe how did Michael Hearns look when you were working UC? What was your what was your look? Well, my hair was... was- was not the color it is now. I earned my white hair and I earned my wrinkles. <laughs> um, uh, kind, kind of, you know, very long black hair, uh, goatee, beard, earrings. Um, I'm, I've got pictures. I I could show you later on. I, your your viewer, your listeners won't be able to see it, but well, we'll put it up on our webpage. We'll put we'll post yeah, some pictures. Us, with I'll, the send you, I'll send you a UC picture. Yeah, I'll send you a UC picture. It was it was just a different time. Um, you know, some of my some of my partners stayed in a very clean cut look, and it worked for them. Um, this kind of worked for me. You know, before we move on to one other question, you talked about your youth. You know, back when you were a youth and watching all this stuff, did any of the kids, other than the good ones we talk about, but did anybody from your childhood end up being a target of your investigation, or you arrested later? No. 
No, and I was I was I was really good about recognizing that people like Steve are out there, and if Steve wants to go get them, he can go get them. There were enough people out there that I didn't need to go hunt in my own backyard, and quite literally, uh, in my very in my first house in uh, South Florida, you could smell marijuana at night. Often, you know, I lived in a in a very very nice part of Miami, uh, uh, large tropical fruit trees, swimming pool, yard, you know, koi pond, whole nine yards. And the guy behind me was a retired Pan American uh, avionics engineer. And he was pretty good horticulturist too. And he had all types of flowering plants and loofahs and things growing on the fence between us. And when I moved into the house, I wanted to keep my undercover persona and not really talk to my neighbors, tell my neighbors what I do. And the realtor, the realtor told all the neighbors who I was. So before I got the first box off the moving truck, you know, I heard, Hey, I heard you're undercover from Coral Gables. Nice to meet you. I'm like, Oh man. Nice. So I'm smelling this marijuana repeatedly for a couple of months and I've gotten to know the neighbor in the back. And he's just a, he's just a guy at the fence line. It's almost like, um, that Tim Allen TV show where you're talking to the guy with the fence line, you know, <laughs> you only see yeah. it from like the yeah. nose. Yeah, up exactly like this, nose. No? Yeah. Hey, great guy too, by the way. And so I'm, his name is Joe and he's passed on. So I can say his first name. So I said, Hey Joe, you know what I do, right? He goes, Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I go, no, Joe, I work really large, you know, high volume cocaine and money laundering cases. So, if you want to smoke a dube in the backyard, I'm not going to jump over the fence and come after you. And he goes, oh, my God, thank goodness. I've been blowing it into a peanut butter jar every night. <laughs> and he he, uh, he basically grew his own. And, when, you know, I did, my, my stance on that is if you grow your own and you're not bringing commerce into it, you're not going into a neighborhood you don't belong in to buy it or sell it, and you're not. If, if that's if this is your afternoon cocktail, then you know you do your thing. I'm not going to jump over the fence and come after you. So no, I didn't go after people I knew, and I kind of stayed away uh, from my old neighborhood. And then when I came back, you know, on to, to a social scene or a wedding or a bar or something, I would oftentimes see people, and they would look at me and they'd be like we haven't seen you in 10 years. And I was like, yeah, I, I don't really come around that much anymore. And like their children would be like 10 or 12 or 14 years old. And they'd see me and go, you're Mike Kearns. I heard all about you. And I'm like, yeah, I, I've never seen you, but I've heard about you. I go, well, yeah, that's tell your, tell your dad. I said, hi, you know? <laughs> <laughs> hey, now, did you ever run into uh, one of your bad guys from before when you were UC, once you'd cleaned up and did you ever run into them and either they didn't recognize you or they had to take a long look at you to figure out, we had some guys, the reason I say we had some guys work UC and when they came back to work in the street and cut their hair and cleaned up and everything, one guy one night is talking to this dude that we had put in jail together. I was part of it, but he didn't rec- He says, who's the other guy? I said, you never met him before? He goes, no. Oh, okay. <laughs> you, you know, do you ever have any of those? I didn't have that. What I did have is, is right after leaving, um, I went to a Home Depot one afternoon to get something. And this individual who I'll make an assumption was Colombian. I was wearing a baseball hat. It looked at me 
And I started walking to Home Depot. He started following me. And I knew that he was there to do a drop. And all he knew was that the target was going to be wearing a hat. So I turned around and I said, do you have something for me? And he went, he nodded his head up and down and said, okay. <laughs> and we started to walk out. And then he realized that I was not the guy he's supposed to drop to. And he took off running. So, you know, I almost almost had my own drop right there because <laughs> I'm wearing down and pace, I'm walking yeah. in, I'm going, I'm, I'm like, I'm out of the device narcotic world about a month and a half now. I'm like, God dang it. This is like, it follows you. Like, you know, I, I must have a you're look a on me magnet. or something. <laughs> you know, you're a drug magnet. That's a whole lot better than being a bullet magnet or shit magnet. Really? Yeah. See, that was <laughs> me. I, cu- I couldn't work UC because my only UC role, my only one time was working with our DEA task force on our guys. I was the banker. I put a, sh- I put a shirt on and a tie and opened up the, you know, the banks, the safety deposit box with the money in it. Cause otherwise I looked like a cop. I could never blend in like you guys. I was just, you know, too much to look. So no, no UC career for me other than uh, Tommy Bahama. I have a fantastic career as an undercover Tommy Bahama, you know, I should hire model. you as a spokesman. They're international yeah. spokesman. <laughs> I, I, I think it's also a mindset. You know, if you don't really like, I didn't socialize with a lot of people in my agency and I didn't socialize with a lot of other officers. The, like I said earlier, the friends I had as a child or the friends I still had, um, I just didn't, I didn't look at myself in that respect, you know? Well, let's talk about post uh, undercover vice narcotics, and you, you've got to come back into the uh, uh, the mainstream world of law enforcement. But you start getting involved uh, with things like um, serial crimes and homicide. So how did you go from, you know, just kind of should tell us, how did you go from working vice narcotics, now you're doing homicides and things like that? Well, we had... And it's still an open case. I can't talk too much about it, but we had a situation where we felt we had a serial murderer come through Coral Gables. It wasn't so much that he did anything in Coral Gables, but our our, our agency um, had an interaction with him. And he, he seemed to, I'm, I'm, I'm really trying to not cheat you or your listeners, but I can't talk too much about it. Just that he seemed to have a lot of things that made him uh, number one on the radar that this guy's done some bad things. And so as Steve will tell you, sometimes in the narcotic world, you're working off doper time and you could be gone and busy for three days straight, or you could have three days of total, you know, Hey, you know, Johnny's going to go hit some golf balls. We'll call him if we need him. I mean, we, we, we got nothing going on. So when I had the downtime, I would start working this case. And I started working very closely with a forensic psychologist from Vermont. And this psychologist, um, uh, Dr. John Philpin, uh, became a friend and a mentor. And he was the uh, criminal profiler brought in for the Gainesville murders in 1990 with Danny Rollin. And he's worked a lot of high-profile cases. So through his tutelage, I started putting this case together and working this case. And then the agency, the Gables, recognized that uh i was had an affinity for this so we had while i was undercover still a serial murderer in miami called the tamiami strangler and he had killed i think six prostitutes 
And on the third one, he wrote a message to us on the, the victim's body, telling us that this is number three, you know. So the Gables saw that we were in a lull in what we were doing, and they they detached me to Miami-Dade Homicide. And through my actions and my my workings with Dr. Philpin, I started drawing up the profile for this case. And in doing so, I put together like a 32-item criminal profile on the serial murderer uh, that we had named the Tamiami Strangler because he was killing these prostitutes and leaving them along the Tamiami Trail, which is a road in Miami. And the guy, the murderer, when he was captured, his name is Rory Conde. He's now on death row in in, uh, Florida. But he hit on 31 of the 32 um, parts of the profile, so much so that while we're working the case, we had two factions working the case, Miami-Dade, because the bodies were being discovered in Miami-Dade, but the prostitutes were last being seen in the city of Miami. So the city of Miami had a task force, that's where I was, and then Miami-Dade had their homicide so I was straddling the line with the two of them. So one morning, they say to me, can you meet this FBI profiler at a restaurant for breakfast? And we were out all night working these cases. So I go to this restaurant, and I don't want to say who the agent is because he's still with the bureau, and he's very, very, he's very good at what he does, and he's very 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 high in the in the bureau chain now so the agent sits across the table from me and he's like um we went through our files at quantico and we don't see that you went to any of our classes and i said no i i haven't been to your classes well we're just kind of curious how you know so much if you haven't been to our classes and I said, well, you know, the FBI typology for serial homicide is based on 33 incarcerated criminals. What John Douglas and Ressler and Hazelwood and, and Burgess did is not always super scientific. And uh, you know what? Before we go on, if you want the guy at the counter and the guy by the door to join us, you just tell him to come over. Because I know you're not here by yourself and those two guys are over there. So just... You tell your other fellow agents to come join us here at the booth. And he got really embarrassed because they had had a team inside the restaurant because they actually suspected me of being the killer because I knew so much. But what they didn't recognize is that, you know, a lot of things with criminal profiling is basically suspending your own logic. And there's a lot of, there's some math involved, believe it or not. There's some math involved. There's some other um science is involved it's not an exact science of course we know that and because they'd never seen or heard from me they were um a little startled and then once they realized that no i am not the serial murderer i actually am a real cop they were uh kind of cool with it and by the end of the investigation just before we uh arrested the killer he um they were working pretty much in tandem with me on that and i was working in tandem with them and so from there it migrating and gravitated and so the gables would sometimes send me to um city miami or miami dade when they had a problem serial burglar 
serial murder, serial rapist. And cops are territorial. They don't want to see an outsider coming in, asking or telling them what to do. So I needed to bolster my credibility. So I went and went back to school and got a master's degree in investigative criminal psychology. And then I got accepted for a doctorate degree in the UK, uh, studying under Dr. David Cantor at the uh, first University of Liverpool. And then I went to uh, Huddersfield University. And the back and forth to England was such a tremendous imposition on the, the Coral Gables Police Department, on myself, on my family. The expense was incredible. The dollar versus the British pound, the VAT tax. And at my age, I figured, how much runway do I really have? So I, 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 I ceased going for the doctorate and just stayed at the master's level. And um, have on, on, with Dr. Philbin, I've worked on multiple um, cases and uh, consulted on a few um, pretty big ones. That's hilarious that the uh, the bureau thought, well, so because you have not taken our classes, how could you do it? You must be the man. Well, what's what's interesting is I, I don't know if you guys have are familiar with VDOC, V I D O C Q. Yeah, well, yeah, I, the VDOC societies up here in Philly. Yeah, I got asked to go to VDOC, and I would sit with uh, with uh, a wrestler before he passed away. I would sit at the table with him, and we'd have some talks, and you know. There, there, are, there are a couple schools of typologies. There's the Holmes method, which um, took the FBI typology to a different to a different stratus, and then uh, Dr. Cantor and Brett Turvey, all these people I studied under and studied with, um, have added to these typologies. So, um, I don't want I, what I don't want to come across as a jack of all trades, master of none, but I found that um, my upbringing and just living in South Florida helped a lot with the vice narcotic years and then uh once again i started to work more to serial homicide you were talking about the gainesville murders a friend of mine uh, retired as a captain at gainesville but he when he was a patrol officer 1990 he was one of the guys that responded to one of the murders yeah that was a bad scene in alachua county gainesville and um you know uh, uh evil exists there's evil in the world and it comes in many forms. Um, yeah, you can't rationalize. There are some people that are just evil. There's you. Do, you don't explain it away. They're just. It, they're evil exists, like you say. And but one thing that came out of that it actually was a program I ended up using later as a detective. We wanted to start. You know, want to start getting a little bit more efficient about. We were doing searches, everything from whether it was homicides or you know drug cases. And they gener- They created a program. I forget the name of it, but it was basically a way to track leads, and that was. developed and derived because of the Gainesville murders. And so we would be able to now we'd collect evidence. uh, We'd bring it in. We'd have, we'd track leads and we're able to track who the lead was assigned to. A lot of that came out of the uh, work that was done by Gainesville. Well, a lot of the things also actually, believe it or not, came out of retail. Um, Like when you go into a CVS or something and they ask you to put in your zip code, they want to see how far you traveled to go to that retail physical store. And that's how they work their marketing uh, programs around that. So using that same thing, Ken Rosmo out of um, Washington State, who's now down in Texas. Texas, I know Kim. Yeah, yeah Kim's. You know, he he's he's he. Doctor Cantor. Cantor has a has a thing called the Circle Theory, and Kim Rosmo also does a lot of geo profiling and Kim's uh, methodology. 
is also based on distance. And then there's a decay distance um, of a crime scene. Like the crime scene can be fresh. And then as you get further out, the crime scene starts to decay. Yeah. Yeah, I, I if I I could probably match you book for book as we, <laughs> um, yeah. So I yeah I was lucky and fortunate. The Gable sent me to some really good schools. I I went to ritualistic crime scene school. I went to um, uh, Santeria school and voodoo school and hoodoo school, and I went to I, I I was blessed. I was blessed and fortunate in many ways, and I took advantage of the opportunities that were given to me. And, and I say I took advantage, not in a, such a way that I became, you know, um, uh, uh, you know, a pig about it. I took advantage of it and then tried to re re put the information they provided to me back out to the agency to help the agency when they needed it. We had Dave Reichert on, uh, the Gary Ridgway, Green River Killer, um, and they did not, and it's just something I talked to Dave about later too, they did not really, were, they were not able, because I don't think it was really formed yet in terms of geographic profiling, but when they went back and looked historically at the cases in Gary Ridgway, and they looked at that distance decay, you know, you would only, you would only go out to a certain distance, because otherwise you increase the risk of being caught, you know, more things can go wrong. So there tends to be an area when they went back and they looked at it, there were two hot spots. It's just amazing to look at that graph, his home and the Kenworth uh, facility where he worked. Yeah. And it just, uh, it's people are creatures that have it. Well, Dr. David Cantor has a circle theory, a small space analysis theory, and he calls it the marauder and the commuter model. Um, Is the killer a marauder? Or a commuter? Do they strike out from their home base, or do they strike near their home base? And with the small space analysis, is based on on uh, Louis Guzman Louis Guzman's um, facet theory from Israel, where you give every crime a numerical number, a slashing of the throat, uh, an evisceration of the abdomen, a uh, gouging of the eye, wherever it may be, gets a numerical number. And as those victims start to correlate against each other, you see where those numbers fall in that that diagram of the circle with a with a um, quadrant through it, and then you start to get a home base out of it. So um, I stopped short of saying it's scientific, but it has science influences. Yeah, and if I remember right, too, because uh, I read a lot of David Cantor, too, he was kind of uh, originally started the geographic profiling you know, discipline, you might say. Kim Rosmo followed on because he was in Vancouver, um, actually worked with a, a buddy of mine that was up there. But what I thought was interesting, they also went back and looked because he had some uh, relation to the Yorkshire Ripper case, right? Yeah, David, uh, I call him David, uh, Dr. Cantor's actual background was in industrial psychology. And then he parlayed that into, as he looked not just at the Yorkshire, but also Jack the Ripper himself. He looked at those cases, did a lot of research papers upon them. And then in the, in, in the UK, he was called upon by Scotland Yard to do a lot of work. And then his work was also picked up by Eric Hickey out of San Diego and uh, Kim Rosmo, as you mentioned, from the Pacific Northwest. I think he's at North Texas State or he's at Sam Morgan State or something down there. Um, yeah, these guys, these guys are revolutionary and they're really good at what they do. I have nothing but respect and admiration. But I also, in, in my discussions with Dr. Cantor, I've also had, um, you know, conflict and not in a challenging way, but, you know, hey, we need to look at it like this, too. And the thing I said to Dr. Cantor one time was, you, from a position of academia, have 
time when you're in law enforcement and you have a serial murderer and you're hosting the Super Bowl in the week and a half, you got every city manager, every mayor, every police chief on your neck telling you to find this guy is a lot of pressure. You know, we don't have the luxury in law enforcement of time sometimes. And that's something we don't get in law enforcement is the luxury of Monday, Monday morning quarterback in analysis, you know, paralysis by analysis over, over, overthinking it. Sometimes you just got to go, hey, look, you know, this is how it's going to have to be. But, you know, that, that was such fascinating. Uh, when I went through the original VICAP training, the Violent Criminal Apprehension Program, I went to a one-week course that was put on by Bill Peters on serial crime profiling. And Bill was one of the original members back in the day of the Behavioral Science Unit, then became the Investigative Science Unit. And I think it's the Behavior Analysis Unit. Yes, correct. I mean, they've had, yeah, they've had so many iterations. All I know is that they're several levels deep, you know, in the uh, down there at Quantico. But in, in the basement, they were at one time. Yeah. And what, what, but, you know, you think about, you look at Silence of the Lambs and you think, first of all, we, I think, Murph, we did review, I believe, Silence of the Lambs. And first of all, you're not pulling a rookie <laughs> who doesn't even have their badge yet, hasn't even graduated to go talk to one of the most dangerous criminals of all, Hannibal Lecter. The author, Thomas Harris, lived in Miami Beach. So, um, like, Dr. Fulpin and I were asked to look at BTK in um, Wichita. And BTK was very simple. I, I, I was kind of dismayed because he was cutting telephone lines in the 1970s. And that told me he knew about alarms. That told me he knew about alarms. So there were only two alarm companies back then. One was called Brinks and one was called Circle. And if you looked at the employee records and put them up against who's still living in the area, you basically, you basically had them. And that's what he did. He was an alarm installer when he first started committing his murders. And when you look also at the location of the victims, there is an outlier. Like we like you talked about Kim Rosmo's hot no, I'm sorry, the Everett Washington hotspots for Green River. All the hotspots are one part of Wichita, and then there's one that's one door, one house away from his own house. You know, he killed the next door neighbor, basically. So, Park Parks Park City, Wichita. Um, he was a code of uh, guy out of my Kansas Highway Patrol class. Retired is now the chief of police in Park City, and they've torn they've torn down his house. There nothing exists that belonged to Dennis. That Trader. happens a lot. They did that with Bob Berdella also in Kansas City. Uh, they did that a lot, and and they need to because evil. You don't want it to become a shrine to right. people that they come evil, visit. Evil is a lure, and it has an attraction to certain parts of the population who will go and see that. That's why, that's why every October Salem, Massachusetts, is full of people. You know, they all want to go there, even though you know it was it was a. Well, we haven't burned a witch since the 16th century, but that I we suppose know we could start again. That we know of, yeah. <laughs> but uh, she's a witch. Uh, Monty Python reference there. <laughs> <laughs> she's a witch. So, hey, well, let's talk about now, because you've parlayed a lot of that. Um, but w as you were doing that, you had 27 years in. Was it just simply because of timing and it was time, you know, you had to do it to maximize retirement? Or over that time, did you, did you get to the point where you think, hey, this is, I mean, I've accomplished everything I wanted to do. What what went the decision for you to say, pull the pin to say, um, I'm done? Well, like I said, we had a change in leadership and the mentality was, um, 
you know, when someone's doing something very well, it's oftentimes easy to think it's easy to do. So the mentality was, hey, let's give some other people a chance to do this. And uh, you've done this a long time. The other mentality was they were they were individuals and cliques and things starting to form in the task force, which upon my, my, my leaving and the leaving of two or three other key people about a year or two later, the, the task force started to implode with some some scandals and some other things that were happening. There just was a difference in the temperature. And it's a long time. And it, it just it just was time to go. I mean, um, by my hand and by their hand, it was just time to go. You know, it's just been a long time. Yeah, that's a lot of a lot of guys, <clears throat> especially once you retire, they ask you, how do you know when it's time to go? And it's just it's hard to explain to anybody. You just have the feeling, you know, it's, it's, I think I've done as much as I'm going to be able to accomplish in this law enforcement career. I was a cop for 38 years and that's a long damn time. Yeah. I don't know if I answered Morgan's question correctly. I thought he was talking about the vineyards, but if he's talking about my actual police career, yeah, no, I was both because we talked about that too. Yeah. You had a change in leadership, but then you got 27 years in it. Year 27. Mm-hmm. How did you know it was time to go? Steve hit the nail on the head. You know, this is a young man's game. Um, I'm already, uh, past retirement age. We like to think we have forever and, you know, your insurance agent will clearly tell you that based on amortization, the average male lives to be 74.4 years of age. And it's, 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 you know, you have to recognize that there's more to life than, that and there's another there's another horizon out there for you and i work with plenty of guys and i'm saying guys meaning you know just as a term gender neutral you know i work with plenty of co-workers who upon leaving our department would say to me now if i get hired by this sheriff's office and i do 10 years with them that's another 30%. And before I came to the Gables, I worked four years for the state as a toll collector. So if I could do six years at the state, I'll be 73. I'll have, and it's like, buddy. You got one year to live, statistically speaking. And then, <laughs> and then you're going to backpack Italy? Are you out of your effing mind? It doesn't happen. I mean, you know, Steve will tell you with his cane and his bad knee at the moment. Things happen to you. You get old. You, you, you and you have responsibilities too. You have children. You have you have you have spouses. You have elderly parents. There's things in your life you need to take care of. And it's just like I was fortunate. I could walk out the door at uh, how old was I? I? I walked out the door like fifty fifty two. No, nah, not that young. I was like fifty. Let's see. I don't know. Let's just say fifty six, fifty seven. Step right into. Um, being a technical advisor on film and TV and um, bouncing between Manhattan and Malibu and Miami. And, you know, it's just a whole new world. So it worked out really well. I mean, you're talking about actuaries. And one of the things I love to, to needle, I ran into a couple actuaries because I said, you guys think you know everything. I said, if you really were good, I know you can tell me how many guys are going to die, what age they're going to be, what race they're going to be, probably what weight they're going to be, what occupation they're going to be, all this stuff. You can tell me everything about the what, where, you know, how and when. You just, you guys, the minute you get down to telling me who, then you give me a call because we'll make some money together. They can tell you everything but who. Yeah. But we don't have forever. 
And life is meant to be enjoyed. Not that the work any of the, any of the three of us did was not enjoyable, but we do know it was fraught with hardship. It was fraught with sacrifice. It was fraught with emotional um, uh, tenacity. And, you know, it's, it's time to not have to be that guy. You don't have to answer that phone at 4 a.m. You know, you don't have to roll out of bed at 2.30 in the morning, you know. And not see your bed for three, four, depending oh, yeah. on what case you're working. I mean, I, working I, I fielded time. phone calls from from CIs and bad guys at my father's hospital bed, my son's hospital bed. I mean, I, I got pulled away from a Father's Day brunch one time. I mean, all kinds of things. And you don't have to live that life anymore. Yeah. Steve, who was it we said? Who was it that was on the podcast? Uh, no, it was Pete Forcelli. Yeah, Pete Forcelli was talking about He said He said, you should always be expected to give 100% uh, of yourself to the job, but don't give 100% of your life to the job. And that was one of the lessons he learned, you know. Um, yeah, and that's and then and we discussed that's not really what happens because when you're in it, you're in it. Yeah. I mean, you're in, you're involved in that. Well, you were talking about – so let's talk now, Pete. You, you Thank you for kind of seeding that uh, commentary. Because you're involved in a couple things, um, you've you recently started writing books in 2020. Your first one came out. Um, you were doing film and stuff. So how did you how did you transition from police work into the world of film, uh, movie, and book writing? It, it wasn't a grand plan. Uh, I was asked to be a technical advisor on a film, and uh, which film uh, hasn't been released yet? It was called Adam. It's about a serial killer. So um, some movies get made and they either don't get released or they get limited released in the sense that for a film to be considered worthy of an Academy Award, it has to air, it has to uh, appear in a theater once in New York City and once in Los Angeles for a week. After that, you can take it away. But we forget sometimes that in parts of Indonesia and in parts of India, parts of New Zealand, they're dying for content, and so films that you never get, never see air down there somewhere so i did this film called adam and from there uh the director and such got to know me so they had a second film coming out and he asked me to go to cornwall new york which is west of the hudson and on that shoot i met the technical advisor who does a lot of products for um fox and nbc and abc and he's based in new york city and he's so busy he can't do it all so he's he said to me, hey, they need me to go to Pittsburgh for this FBI procedural uh, TV show. Can you do it for me? I said, sure. So as soon as we wrapped the movie in uh, Cornwall, I went to Pittsburgh and worked on an, ABC, on, an, um, on an NBC Universal TV show about the FBI. And I was a technical advisor for that one. And then I did something for A&E and... Um, was at the American Film Market in Santa Monica, shaking hands, meeting people, met some people who were doing a movie called The Cuban, which is uh, not in the law enforcement uh, sphere. It's more of a... Um, it's not about a sandwich, is it? No. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a movie. Of, it's a feel-good movie about uh, love and music. It's about a, a, a patient in a nursing home who has dementia and uh, a nurse starts to play music around him, and he becomes more animated and back to life a little bit. And, he reali and they realize that he was once a very famous Cuban musician in pre-Castro. And 
it didn't look like it had a lot of legs to it when I got behind the project. And then we signed um, Lou Gossett Jr. and a couple other big names to the uh, to the project, and it, it did really well. And that's how it kind of started with the film and TV. Um, I was spending a lot of time in New York, Manhattan. I spent some time in L.A. I was um, fortunate enough that a friend of mine had a very, very large house in Malibu he wasn't using and threw me the keys. And I was living in Malibu at uh, Tom Petty for a next-door neighbor and just uh, doing it. Well, somebody's got to do it. Somebody's well, good do thing it. you were living in that house. Otherwise, we wouldn't want you to live like a refugee. Yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> but, um, um, thank you very I, I would much. Actually, oh, he was a good guy, and he still, I, I still have him in my cell phone. I don't have the heart to take him out. He, I would hear him like every third or fourth night. You would hear him wafting over the hedge as he rehearsed in his back studio. He has studio studio in the back of his house. And he'd open the French doors. And I could hear him uh, rehearsing and trying riffs and things over over the hedge at night. Cool. Yeah, bless. I'm, I've I've been incredibly fortunate in my life. Really super. I've had such such amazing experiences and stuff like that. You know. Well, what about your uh, your book series now, the Cade Taylor book series? How'd you get into that? Well, uh, the first book is called Trust No One, and that which I just finished, and it's a very good book. Highly recommended. And you can find it at michaelhearns.com. That's michaelhearns.com. One more time, michaelhearns.com. Here's how to order. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Yes, it's it, you can get it at any independent bookstore or Amazon or Walmart, Target. They all have it in their catalog. Uh, so it's called Trust No One. Thank you, Steve, for the for the compliment. Um, that story that that storyline I kind of kicked around in my head for a while, and. Um, I got asked, and I'm sure Steve got asked a lot to write um, a tell-all, and I think he basically did with Narcos. And uh, I didn't want to do a tell-all. I kind of wanted to do a fictional character. And I felt that the Coral Gables Police Department needed to be represented um, properly, you know, good and bad. And tell the story of a South Florida detective, a young detective in the VIN unit who's challenged with different cases and has to navigate his way through these, these cases. And, um, I wanted to bring a part of what Steve and I and, 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 and Morgan, I'm sure did, but what Steve and I did in South Florida, I wanted to bring a part of that to the reader that they don't normally see in books and movies and also bring a sequence of action that they don't normally see in books and movies. It's very, you know, Steve will tell you, uh, filling out forms, sending in paperwork is very boring. So, you know, my books are authentic, but they're not boring. They're, they're authentic in the sense that you're going to really hear the dialogue between uh, dopers and CIs and you're going to really feel the tension that Cade goes through in every book. The first one trust no one. The second one grasp and smoke. And the third one, one more move. All three of them are highly researched. Um, they're, they're authentic to South Florida. They're geographically correct or chronologically correct. If I say there's a Miami dolphin game, th- that game really did happen. If I, if they order from a restaurant, they don't just order anything. They actually order from the menu of that restaurant. Um, I, I researched title charts, moon phases, everything. So it's almost as if while you were living your life, 
you get this bioptic view of Cade Taylor and what he's doing. And it's as if all this was going on around you. You just weren't aware of it. And that's kind of the life that Steve and I lived. We were doing things in South Florida that the average guy in the car parked next to us waiting for the light to change had no idea what we were doing, had no idea that we were trailing a car or doing something. So the books are are gaining a lot of traction because people are um, – uh, there's like there's a Kay Taylor legion of fans out there. Um, Cade is not a perfect hero. He's not a perfect character. He has some flaws. He's dealing with his own emotional issues and 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 some of the carnage that's gone on in his own life. But he he stays in the fight. He doesn't give in. He doesn't give up, and he doesn't compromise. And he stays in the fight. And he recognizes that he's in a he's in a world that people don't fully understand, much like what Steve and I did. And he also recognizes that he has to stay one step ahead of everything. Um, would you agree, Steve? Since you read it, oh, absolutely. That's why it's that's why it's called trust no one. And the ending, I'm not saying it. I'm, what I'm gonna say is my view of the first one of trust no one is it's a who done it, and this ending is very surprising. There was two surprises. Who who actually done it and who brings it to the close? Well, Mark, I, there's I, a third surprise you forgot to tell everybody. There's no pictures. I re- actually read. No, no. The there's words. the fact that you could actually read it. That's the third surprise. I did. Did Connie read it to you, or did you do a book on tape? You know. <laughs> no, I actually got the book. So the book is set in in uh, trust. No one is set in February of 1998. And then uh, grasp and smoke, which is a, actually a term we use in criminal profiling. When you can see something in front of you, but you can't get your hands around it, it's as difficult as grasp and smoke. And Cade is once again challenged in this book, and this takes place in October of '98. And it's a uh, it's totally different, Steve. It's totally different. Uh, I mean, some of the characters reoccur, but uh, it's a totally different thing. And then the next one, one more move, takes place in November, and all three of them are 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 doing quite well in the sense that people who do read them seem to really enjoy them. Um, there are people in the entertainment business who would like to see it. You know, I've talked about option, and then Steve knows that that is not something that happens overnight, and that's not something that uh, it's it's a long trail of. We're gonna to talk to you. we're gonna to talk to Ethan, and when Ethan says yes, then we'll be with Sony, and then all of a sudden Ethan says no, and now Joel over at Fox wants it. It just it goes back and forth, and and it's not it's horrible. Yeah, it's it, it's a, it's a grind. So it's a lot of carrot dangling in front of you. Um, I think you guys would would would, would like the, the other two. I think Steve, you'll enjoy it. since you've had your first taste of Kay Taylor in the first book. I think you'll really enjoy the other two even more. Uh, Morgan, if you should choose to pick them up, I think you'll like them as well. I'm a big reader. I read on average 40 to 50 books a year. Wow. Um, and I'm actually working on my own. I actually have, uh, if I got to get my ass finished, I've got it done. The first one done, I'm in the process of my second round of edits to it. You know, I'm really got to cut word count down. Um, just a, just as full disclosure here, Michael, you know, he, he counts the coloring books yeah, too. Yeah. Dude, you know, um, if it sells, it sells. Well, like I said oh, earlier, when we were off mic, I said, you know, people will call me and they'll say, hey, I'm reading your book. And I'll go, oh, hey, thanks a lot. Yeah, I'm on page 204. And I go, okay. Yeah, I'm on 204. Well, you know what's on 204. And I go, I, I don't know what that means. And I go, you got to tell me what's happening. Oh, okay. All right. Okay. 
well, you just did this and you just did that. And I'll go, that's not me. It's Kay Taylor. And they go, yeah, yeah, I know, but it's you. And I go, no, it's not me. It's, it's Kay Taylor. <laughs> Kay Taylor's who you're reading, not me. The, the book was good enough that I'm going to order the next two. I hope you so. Know, and, I, and, I, I, I would love to personalize those for you if, if, if opportunity or ever should come. We're in the same geographical space. Um, you know, coming from you, that's a big compliment because you live that life. And I think you can see reflections of your own image in the K. Taylor book since you lived that life. Yeah, just and and being that it was based in Miami during the same time frame, basically, I, that's what I like about it. Yeah, it's, you know, it's you very authentic in your mind to Miami as you're reading. Yeah, you're picturing everything in your mind, and I know a lot of the places that you're talking about down through there. Yeah, and uh, some of those places aren't around anymore. And like in in the book that uh, Steve read, Trust No One, there's a pivotal scene that takes place on the street, and that street has been renamed. Now, it's not the same name. So, some people go, hey, that street doesn't exist anymore. Well, it did in 1998. So, everything is very accurate. Very, very accurate to the times. So, let me ask you a quick question on that. Uh, Who's your favorite? um, As you were looking at this, who were uh, some of the authors that inspired you? Who do you read? I'm not as big a reader as you are, only because for the last three years, I've been writing books. And in reading other people's material, it's sometimes... um, I don't want to be uh, swayed or influenced or subconsciously pick up something from someone else. But in times past, I think the three of us can all raise our hand and say we read Lee Child. We read Michael Connolly. Um, there is an author out of Vermont, Archer Mayer. I've read him a few times. Um, he has a procedural series. Um, this is what I'm trying to do with Cade is Cade is Cade Taylor is kind of a procedural series. You can read the books out of order and there will be no spoilers. But if you do it like Steve's doing it, if you read them in order, there will be references made to previous books, and you'll know what they're talking about. But if you read them out of order, you won't be like lost or spoilers. And when you do a procedural character, you have to like introduce everybody in each book. So as Kay Taylor or Major Brunson appears in the next book, you have to once again, introduce who they are and who they are and who they are. And and the, the thing that my wife picked up on is the, the Vin secretary um, in all three books, she says she's a Hispanic single mom. And every time she calls Kate, she always hangs up the phone with, okay, Joe, I've been told. Okay, Joe, I've been told. And that's how she always ends the books. And there's some, there's some humor in the books a little bit. There's some sarcasm. Kate is kind of sardonic. He's, he's jaded a little bit. Um, He's been singed in life a little bit, and I don't really flesh him out. Like, I don't really overly describe him because uh, I want people to have their own interpretation of him. They just kind of know what his hair looks like and what he looks like a little bit, but I don't really go into, you know, like Jack Reacher in, in the Lee Child books. They always talk about how he's six foot six with a size 13 shoe, and he's got hands the size of, you know, canned hams and stuff like that. I, I kind of let the reader do their own thing. The main thing I did, and you can barely see it, you guys can barely see it, is I always, I always have, I always have Cade wearing a Harford Whaler baseball hat when he wears a hat, and it's just my little homage to a defunct hockey team. It's like saying the Brooklyn Dodgers. It's like the Magnum PI with the Detroit Tigers. It's just a little homage to a to a, a hockey team nobody cared about, and yet he's. And, that, and it kind of shows the kind of character Kay Taylor is. He's holding on to strings and tendrils of 
things that bring comfort to him in life that don't bring it to other people. Um, you know, he's a Vin detective and he's in Miami and he is in a, he's in situations where he can't really, as Steve said earlier, trust anybody. And he's navigating his way through all that. I tell you, there were a lot of, uh, not a ton, but there were several instances where his character did things. And I'm thinking, what in the hell did you do that for? Like, you know, initially going in the hospital there towards the end. And I won't say any more than that because I don't want to give it away when he went to the ATM machine. You know, and I'm thinking, what are you doing? At? Or when he went to the stash house by himself. You know, I'm just thinking, dude, that's not what you're supposed to do. What he are you doing? obviously didn't listen to Boyd Holbrook in the training you gave him. Don't go in the house. But I think what yeah. Steve's going to tell you is that, and what I do with all three books is everything counts. Everything matters. Mm-hmm. And what looks very innocuous and looks like it has no meaning has meaning in the end. He will do things and say things on page uh, 14 that all of a sudden in page 90 makes total sense. Exactly. It all ties together. It all ties together in the end. Yeah, exactly. All three books are that way. It's the old famous Anton Chekhov saying, it says, if you show a gun in act one, you better use it in act three. You know, if you don't, you don't bring stuff out. Hey, well, let's do this too. Let's talk. That's your author side, but you're also continuing to do some training and stuff. And and I got it right this time. Money laundering. I mean, laundering, laundering, launder. See, I got it wrong. It's been out there. Too much travel, dude. It's like I got (laughs) Kevin Black wrong and I said Kevin Jackson. I met Kevin Black. Here's laundering money. com. Yeah. Laundermoney.com. The reason why was because uh, back in the day, we all knew uh, us guys in Miami. We knew Charles and Triago when he started uh, ACAMS. And he was way ahead of the curve and he got moneylaundering.com like two months before I got this. So I had to, I couldn't take that that web name. So I became laundermoney.com. And um, yes, I've taught um, I've taught uh, law enforcement. I've taught banks, financial centers, um, analysts. Ilea. I've taught it. I taught a Ilea conference um, all over. I've been. I heard you mention earlier you were in San Diego and going back to LA. I've been. I've taught in LA. I've taught in Coronado. I've taught in Nebraska, New York City, New York State, Florida. And what I tried to do with the money laundering. Um, AML instruction is I kind of teach you from a law enforcement point of view. Like there's actually one component of how to set up a UC um, AML uh, task force. Uh, so the law, the, the financial side gets more the banking aspect of it. But when I teach law enforcement, I do talk about how to handle informants. I talk about some officer safety issues. I'm a certified officer survival instructor. I bring some of that into the equation. I remind people that, you know, this is not Hollywood. These are not bespeckled, white shirt, dark tie, you know, accountants. These, this is money, and people die for it all the time. Um, I bring in some real-time cases. I take them through some actual cases of from start to finish, show them how to handle cases. I give them some of the tips, how to deal with um, prosecution. You know, it's one thing to seize money. It's another thing to keep it. You can seize all the money you want, but if you lose it in the court process, you need to be able to articulate to a judge, you know, why that currency is deemed to be um, contraband. So, yeah. 
I teach all that. It's the old Seinfeld episode about the rental car. You know how to take the reservation. You just don't know how to keep the reservation. So you know how to seize the money. You got to be able to keep it too. Exactly. Hey, so, well, look, as we bring this to a close, um, as you reflect back over, and I, I was, the reason I asked you about Cade Taylor before I dive into it, how much of Cade Taylor, and I, I don't want to say that you did the stories around it, but how much of that is you, uh, you know? How much of that, you don't always want to say it's an exact duplicate, but there's always some influence with the uh, character. So how much of Cade Taylor is you? Well, he got the girl in the end. I'll give you that much. Did you get the girl I, in the I, end? I, 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 I would, um, <laughs> I think my wife gets angry when Cade Taylor has relationships. Um, <laughs> I, Honey, but I it's would, not for real. I would, uh, I would venture to do the old Robin Masters on this one. You know, you might have to decide for yourself how much, where does, where does real life and where does literature um, collease together? Well, but see, yeah. that would only happen if people know you. And so I'm asking you, the author, when you look at that character, how much of it, how much of Cade Taylor do you see? How much of yourself do you see in Cade? You don't have to talk about the specifics, but I, you know, I, I'll like, just say you write what you know. That explains it all. Now, does Cade Taylor have long, flowing, beautiful black hair that's pulled into a ponytail, or is he more of a shortcut kind of guy? I think right now the soft cover selling for fifteen ninety five, and the hard cover is twenty five ninety nine. Or Steve and could, or Steve, or Steve could tell you. Um, <laughs> I, I think I think you'll be happy if you, if you picked it, especially if you're traveling so much and reading. I think you'll be happy. You can get them on Kindle too if you want the e version of them. That's that's yeah, the way you, I have you go, most of my stuff. If you go to the Coral Gables Venn office and the secretary is there, Ileana, is that her yeah, name? Yeah, in the, in the book, she's, it's Ileana, yeah. You know, Kay Taylor looks scuzzy. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. Well, hey, look, this has been good stuff. Great career, you know, yes. just well-rounded. You got to do a lot of stuff. Um, final parting thoughts as you look back on your career and your writing career, um, you know, as you think about, you know, where you go forward in like the next Cade Taylor book, uh, is there anything else on the horizon for you other than a book? Anything else from the film and movie industry? Anything from the training side? Uh, Steve will tell you this when it comes to TV and film. Don't say anything until there's something to say. Um, got a good positive phone call yesterday from New York about uh, a different project that looks like uh, very promising. We'll see where that goes. Um, once again, Steve and I both have had those carriage dangled in front of us multiple times. And, you know, what happens with the three of us and people like us is when you go to a cocktail party or an event, everybody wants to hear your stories. And I, I actually find, and I told this to Steve earlier, I, I find it, I don't want to detract from, you know, the host or the event. And I often come across as a very boring guy because if I told people, I did this, I did this, I did that, I did this. They think I'm the biggest liar in the world. I mean, if we go back to the Bond goo, you know, really? You, you know, you can't even find your car keys. You're going to tell me that you handled kilos of cocaine, you handled cocaine keys, but you can't even find your car keys. And, you know, so it, I, I, I don't really talk too much about things and I keep a low profile because I don't think anybody would ever believe the historical things and, in life the three of us have had truth is always stranger than fiction it is it, it is. Really is but when i also told Thanks. steve too when we first talked is that you know oscar wilde said you know the world is full of men who live with lives of quiet desperation you know we have we three have and your other guests as well have all stood on the abyss and we've looked over the edge and we've been smart enough to back away 
damn right. <laughs> There's some scary shit out there, people. Amen. Just stay home. A- That's right. Amen to that. Well, let's bring this to a close. This is us saluting you, as we always do with all of our guests. Michael Hearns, which you can find him at michaelhearns.com. And also, and I'm going to get it right this time because I'm not going to mix it up because the other guy got the domain. It's launderingmoney.com. So go to michaelhearns.com, get his Cade Taylor series. Go to launderingmoney.com to get all your training needs. And then come to Game of Crimes podcast.com and hear his interviewer and find us on all the Apple platforms. So this is us saluting you, Mr. Michael Hearns, saying thank you very much, sir, for a job well done. Don't go anywhere. Marf, you had you were about to say something. Finish up. I was just going to say thanks, Michael. It's been a treat to have you on here. When we vetted you, you sounded interesting, and you just proved it, buddy. So thanks for being in here, brother. Well, I, I, I like that word, brother. Thank, thank you, guys. Always. All right. You guys don't go anywhere. Everybody else, stay tuned for the debrief. Well, dude, man, that's like uh, if there was a Dos Equis commercial, he might be starring in it, the most interesting man. <laughs> that was, I mean, that was some, you know, you think about the career and stuff, but I mean, 22, 22 million smackolas, you know, simoleons. I've never seen that much money. I, the largest I'd ever seen was 14 million. And it wasn't my case. It was somebody else's case. But 22, that's a, that's a big lick, man. And that, that's probably what Javier's, uh, Javier's got hidden in his walls down there in San Antonio. He's probably got that in his checking account. <laughs> but uh, I tell you what, Michael, thank you so much for coming on the the books. I read the first one, uh, and it just ran right out of my brain here. Trust uh, no one. Trust no one. And it's an interesting – once you get into it, it's one of those books you can't put down. So we strongly encourage you to, to reach out and check out Michael's books. I'm going to order the second one and get started reading on that. Uh, I got to tell you guys, you know, if you have a book, we try and read the book before we have you on the show, at least one. And I, I'll be honest, I didn't. I haven't read this much. I didn't read this much when I was in college. <laughs> well, it was tough, Murph. Uh, you know, fifth grade was the hardest three years of your life. Darn right. That, well, that was after second grade, you know. <laughs> but we yeah, had a blast that- with Michael. And that's one of the other things we love about this. We love bringing in our state and local partners because it's not just the feds that are working the big cases. I mean, Michael's a perfect example about persevering through uh, all the challenges i'll i'll be nice and say challenges that can be encountered through competition amongst law enforcement agencies believe it or not most cops are type a's and they're very territorial about their investigations they want to do it right but the other thing too murph to your point nobody parachutes into federal jurisdiction they're all in some state or local jurisdiction Mm -hmm. somewhere and you have to everybody's got to work together that's the only way it works uh no man is an island unto himself so just, um, and when you don't work with everybody, the bad guys win. It's just it's right. silly. It's silly. I'm guilty of doing it in the past, but it is silly. Well, look, and the other thing too is when you try and John Wayne it, go it alone, uh, you're not going to solve many cases either because you're going to realize you do not have everything you need. But anyway. Absolutely. Good stuff, though. At check out michaelhearns.com, launderingmoney.com, and go hit up our page. Everything's on our webpage and in the show notes. So head on over there. Also, to head on over to Apple and Spotify, hit those five stars. It's magic. We don't know how it's work. It's Disney, David Copperfield, David Blaine, all rolled into one. Also, head on over to gameofcrimespodcast.com. That, Murph, that's gameofcrimespodcast.com. That's what I said. Yeah, that's what game, I said. That's what you said. That's what you meant to say. <laughs> it sounded that just the podcast was silent. Gameofcrimespodcast.com. That's where the book list is. You'll see all of the Cade Taylor novels. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think you guys are going to like that. Um, so one more time, 
uh, or I mean, uh, Trust No One, One More Move, and Grasping Smoke. So uh, some good novels there. Also, follow us on that thing they call social media, at Game of Crimes on Twitter, Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook, and the Instagram. But, man, go check us out, patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. All the good stuff is there. All the fun stuff is there. We really put a lot of effort into putting content. In fact, we have probably – we I know we do. We have more content, more hours per month through Patreon than we do on our free podcast here. So just give us a shot. Go check us out at patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. And once again, we bring another exciting episode 87. Thank you to Manscaped for sponsoring this episode. We really appreciate it. Absolutely. Uh, check out their products. Both Murph and I got the products. I'm telling you, I was like a kid at Christmas opening that stuff up because they sent us everything. The the trimmers, the shower gel, the the beard products, the um the underarm deodorant. Oh man, oh, that smells the best. I'm telling you, I'm gonna smell so skippy the next time I go out. Next time you I know go to the shower. You know this, Morgan, but I, we were out of town when the box was delivered, and so I got one of my neighbors to pick it up, and they're having the most fun in our neighborhood of talking about Murph getting a box from Manscaped. <laughs> you got to love it. You got to love it. Got to love it. Hey, but we love our sponsors, too, so you guys yes, check them out, manscaped.com. Uh, just make sure you use GOC mm-hmm. uh, at checkout for 20% and free shipping. So just make sure you do that. Yeehaw. It's also in the ad that you heard earlier. So we thank you guys. And thank you guys once again for playing the biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all. And the South Florida or Florida, somewhere in Florida, Coral Gables location friendly game of crimes. (laughs) 